Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Well, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. It's a long chapter, um, and it's mostly a sermon. Stephen's role in the early church was so important that we are devoting three messages to his impact. And so last time we looked at Stephen's ministry and his arrest, and we saw that Stephen the layman could do what Peter the Apostle had done. He was able to provide healing and witness, and um, so that wasn't just an apostle thing. It wound up being the early deacon things too. And we really love how immediately in the raising up of these early deacons, now again, the word in English deacon isn't used there, but the word deacon in the Greek is all over that Acts 6 passage. And so it's fair to say this was the raising up in Acts 6 of the first deacons. And what a, what a first two we see, Stephen, and then next chapter we'll see Philip. Um, so this time we are going to look at Stephen's message. And by the way, it's the longest message by anyone in the book of Acts. So think about that. Peter preaches in Acts and Paul preaches in Acts, but the longest one is from messages from a deacon. So think about that the next time you think one of pastor's messages is long, that the longest one in Acts was a layperson's, uh, the deacon Stephen. And his message is brilliant. We'll look more at it in a minute. But next time we'll look at Stephen's martyrdom. So we got some M's in there, right? His ministry, his message is martyrdom. And... Uh, you know, the Bible says, give attention to the public reading of the Word, and to read before I comment on this text, I need to read 53 verses for you. So let's just read down through there. But, but think specifically about what Stephen and his message is trying to communicate to them, his Jewish audience, uh, about how uh, you know, Jesus is the Messiah, and they should have uh, known that when they had uh, seen him the few months before these events. Then the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, Brethren and fathers, listen. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran and said to him, Get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Then he came out of the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land in which you now dwell. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession and to his descendants after him. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. But God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now a famine and great trouble came over all the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no sustenance. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. 
And the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to the Pharaoh. Then Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives to him, 75 people. So Jacob went down to Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid in the tomb that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deeds. Now when he was forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. And the next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian, where he had two sons. And when forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight, and he drew near to observe. The voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out, and after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and the Red Sea and in the wilderness forty years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall, you must hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us, for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it's written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphim, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon." Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the day of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the house of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? 
You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels, but have not kept it. Mm. No place is holy without Emmanuel. That's the title of our message. Well, to fully understand this great message from Stephen, we need to review the key themes of the Old Testament. And so to recap them, you first get the first 11 chapters, Genesis 1 through 11, covers uh, the whole earth's beginnings, and it's so beautiful when you read it all. Uh, creation, fall, God initiating redemption through covering sin, and the first prophecy of a coming Messiah, Messiah or Christ. So Stephen doesn't cover this because his Jewish audience has already affirmed it. Uh, later, when uh, we're going to see, uh, um, not only does Acts give us great information about the substance of the early church's preaching, they preached Christ and Him crucified. With a Jewish audience, they always started with things Jewish audiences always accepted. We get a couple places where they talk to Gentiles, and there they don't start with the Jewish uh, uh, call and law. Instead, they start with creation. And so the first 11 chapters, Genesis, the creation, uh, you know, the great questions, where do I come from? What does God expect of me? Uh, but also, why am I in the mess I'm in? It's because of the fall, right? You know, why, uh, even though I have in my mind a sense of how things ought to be, do I understand that um, I am not experiencing that and I need a Savior? And then you think about the early things of redemption, and then in Genesis 12 to the end of the Old Testament, it covers the outworking of that unconditional Abrahamic covenant. Abraham was promised three things. Tell me the three things Abraham was promised by God. The land of Canaan. Amen. The land of Canaan. That's one. What else? It'd be a great and blessed nation, right? And then finally, there's some people count up more things, but they come down to these three things. The land, that they'd be a great nation and that all peoples on earth would be blessed through his seed, the seed of Abraham, and that's a promise of the Messiah. And the word seed is used specifically uh, in many passages, Genesis uh, 15 and onward. Um, so then Exodus 20 to the end of the Old Testament covers the outworking of the conditional Mosaic law or covenant. Israel was promised blessings for obedience, but curses for disobedience, which could involve captivity to foreign enemies if necessary. If you want a blessing sometime soon, look at Deuteronomy 4, where Moses lays out for them, you know, listen, uh, blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, but you're a motley crew, you'll probably disobey. And if you do that long enough, God will judge you. He'll have, he'll, you know, you, you dispossess nations, you're gonna dispossess nations going into the promised land. If you sin enough, God will dispossess you. He won't tolerate you doing those same things as the nations you dispossess. So if that happens, he'll take you into captivity. A mighty nation will come and get you. You'll eventually be spread to the whole earth. But he says, and he uses, actually uses in Deuteronomy 4 the words in the latter days and talking about all the way in the future where God will uh, redeem Israel. And uh, that goes all the way out to the things we're looking at now as we look at the book of Revelation. But conditional. Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. These things God says will happen whether you keep your end of it or not. Individual generations might miss out on it. Um, individuals that don't have faith in God and His promises among the Jews and um, individual generations might miss out on it. 
but God will keep His promise uh, to Abraham. Uh, and many times in the Old Testament, uh, as people pray, they remind God of His promises. God, you promised. That was unconditional. But they understand blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience, uh, that the Mosaic part was conditional and really also revealed another purpose of the law was to reveal their need of a Savior. So yes, the law did curb sin, and as the people obeyed it, uh, it gave a picture of what God's heart for His people was, and really all people, because as Israel obeyed the law, they were going to be a completely different nation than nations around them. And sometimes I just go back and I read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and I just read in there and I go, man, God cares about His people. I mean, just tremendous things in there. Every once in a while you see something there, you scratch your head a little bit. He winds up regulating some things he doesn't condone, but that's because he knew their sinful heart was going to go in those areas and he didn't want the most vulnerable among them to suffer, right? So the law itself has three parts. Perhaps you've heard me teach on it before. You will someday again, you know, but there's the moral law applicable for all time. So it says don't commit adultery, right? Don't steal. And... The, the easy way to know what the moral law is that we have to obey as believers too, Christ, well, the New Testament calls it Christ's law, but it's basically the moral law that's throughout history and time. And anything repeated as uh, sin in the pages of the New Testament is moral law. It's always sinful. So if you become a master of what's in the New Testament, you'll know all that God expects for you. There was also the priestly law. Um, how God gave them provision to worship, to be forgiven of their sin through the sacrificial system, uh, to experience the uh, festivals that also pointed to Christ. The New Testament makes clear all of those are fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. So we don't slaughter a Passover lamb because Christ is our Passover. Uh, we celebrate that a different way by taking the Lord's Supper. And so in that sense, the Mosaic Covenant points toward the need of Christ and uh, for not only the Jews but all people. And then, of course, there's the civil law, and that was the rules just for Israel, probably intended to be just for the time before Christ came. And so the civil law often was an outworking of the moral and priestly law, uh, so you had to have specific rules about Sabbath keeping and how to do the festivals, but also how to ha deal with mold in your home, uh, you know, and things like that. And, and, and we don't go to Leviticus to figure out how to deal with mold in our home now, and we don't need to, you know. Uh, that part of the law has now become obsolete now that Christ has come. It had its purpose. So probably even getting Israel into the Promised Land, there's a prohibition on eating shellfish. You can't boil it well in the desert. Probably would have killed a lot of people if they were eating bad shellfish in the desert. Uh, prohibition on pork, you know. And praise the Lord, the day came where God told Peter, have a barbecue with your Gentile friends, you know. Uh, we're so glad that time came, you know. So, uh, but you know what's neat is, even in that civil law, don't ever just skip through it when your t Bible reading takes you to the uh, civil law of Israel because you learn great things about the heart of God in that. And uh, I'll talk about that again another time. But his heart for those most likely to be uh, put in a vulnerable position uh, many times that shines through through the civil law. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. If you had a servant and cracked their teeth, they had to be set free. I mean, that's the how low the threshold was on taking care of your people, right? Um, so, Second uh, Samuel seven, chapter seven, to the end of the Old Testament covers the outworking of the unconditional Davidic covenant. So, once again, we're using that word unconditional. David was promised that his son Solomon would be allowed to build the temple. More importantly, he was promised that one of his descendants would be the Messiah 
and rule forever from David's throne in the land promised to Abraham. And then you get to the poetic books, Job through the end of... uh, Job, we believe, is is a history book, but it's so poetic it was brought into uh, when David uh, wrote the Psalms and Solomon wrote the wisdom books. It's put in the wisdom books. We call them the poetic books. And the prophetic books, you know what those are, where the prophecies are given of the Old Testament, give much clarifying information about the coming Messiah and the future of Israel and the world. And so when you put all those things together, you've got so much. You know, I'm in Revelation 13 this coming Sunday. Uh, Most of what you see there about the Antichrist, you already see in the book of Daniel um, and uh, other places as the Scripture builds forward. So in places like Isaiah 53, the Messiah was described as a suffering servant who would atone for the sins of the people. In many other places, he was described as a conquering king who would throw off Israel's oppressors for good. And that brings us up to the charges that they leveled against um, Stephen. So the first one they leveled at him, blasphemy against God, against Moses, against the temple, the law, and Jewish customs. So you see that back in chapter 6. It says in verse 11, Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people, the elders, the scribes. They came upon him, seized him, brought him to the council, They also set up false witnesses who said, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so Stephen is blaspheming. in the They said this man, we arrested him because he's blaspheming against God, Moses, temple, the law, and Jewish customs. So his message that we just read brilliantly answers their charges while reaffirming his love. Uh, for the Old Testament. And he makes two major points as he goes through. Um, So we've read a lot of scripture, and you heard some familiar Old Testament things there, but he makes two major points. The first one is Israel's land, Israel's law, Israel's temple were meant to be means to experience God's presence, um, be means of or to experience, if we had the word of there, it'd be experiencing, but experience God's presence, not ends in themselves. So Chapter 7, verse 2 and 3, he said, Brothers and fathers, listen, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham um, and gave him the commission to get and go to a land that I will show you. But don't skip over, the God of glory appeared to Abraham. And the God of glory wants to appear and have a relationship with all people. So he makes clear that he too is relying on the promises made to Abraham. He reminds them that though the land was God's special gift to the descendants of Abraham, where did God originally appear to Abraham? In a foreign land, right? He appeared to him in Haran and said, go on down, right? Uh, Keep on going. So Stephen's making a subtle point here, you know. Um, You know, yes, it's special to go to the Holy Land, but God first appeared to Abraham before he got to the Holy Land, right? Um, not only did God appear to Abraham before he ever saw the Holy Land, Abraham never really got any of the land during his lifetime, right? So chapter 7, verse 8, he says here, um, Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begot Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac begot Jacob, Jacob begot the um, twelve patriarchs. Um, And so um, he appeared to Abraham, and we know that Abraham was mostly a sojourner uh, in that land, and many things showed that. Uh, do you remember one time Abraham planted a tree, 
and uh, he um, called it, uh, it was a tribute, and he calls God a new name there, El Elom, El Olam, Olam, the everlasting God. And he anticipated every time he walked by that tree, he'd remember the promises that were given. He um, bought a grave site, right, where he'd be buried, and he was very specific to buy it. And more there is happening than just uh, taking out a lot of the cemetery. What he's doing is he's making a down payment on the Holy Land, you know. And he went throughout the land and he plant, uh, put altars up and worshiped God. The scriptures record him doing that in the south part of Israel, the north part of Israel, the central part of Israel. And all those trees and altars and the burial plot were reminders that uh, one day, you know, this will be the promised land. But he didn't experience it in that, that in his lifetime. He did experience God quite a bit, right? Abraham got to have an uh, encounter with the angel of the Lord. He got to have an encounter with Melchizedek, who may have been a Christophany. That may have been Jesus Christ. I think that. Some others don't. But, um, you know, I don't know what else Hebrews means by it saying this cat had no beginning or end. You know, I mean, Sounds like God to me, you know. That sounds like the one Micah talks about when he says his goings forth are from of old, yea, of everlasting, you know. Anyway, um, but um, I like how the African Bible commentary says it. Stephen's opponent spoke of this holy place, but he was making the point that there is no holy place without the presence of the God of glory who, speak, who seeks obedience regardless of this place. Now, verses 29 through 34. Um, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian. So uh, Moses uh, starts in Egypt many, a couple centuries, uh, several centuries after the time of uh, the patriarchs being in the land, fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. Forty years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush at the temple. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Where did, where did uh, the angel of the Lord appear to Moses? In the wilderness of Mount Sinai, right? Um, when Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. As he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him saying, I am. The great I am met with him, the God of your fathers. Verse, uh, it says at the end of that verse, Moses trembled and dared not look. The Lord said to him, take your sandals off your feet for the place where you stand is holy ground. What? This isn't Jerusalem. This isn't where the temple is going to be. He, but it's uh, out, in the, out in the desert, out in the, near Mount Sinai. I've surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their groaning and come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you uh, to Egypt. So where did God first meet with Moses? He started dealing with him even when he was, uh, you know, out there in Midian, out there taking care of his father's sheep and those th sorts of things. Um, uh, so before the Holy Land was theirs, before the temple was built, and so the second point Stephen makes here is just as Israel's fathers had resisted the prophets, Israel's present leaders had rejected their Messiah. They were the ones truly guilty of blasphemy. So they say you've committed blasphemy, and he's like, well, listen, Back when the prophecies of the Messiah came from the old time prophets uh, in the Old Testament, you rejected them, you resisted them. Now the one they spoke about has come and you killed him. So who's the one guilty of blasphemy? Right? So brilliant answers by this wonderful uh, deacon here. Um, so verse 9, And patriarchs becoming envious sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of all his troubles, gave him favor and his wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So God had given Joseph a dream that affected Israel's future, right? Um, and he had blessed them with that revelation. He told them what the dream said. 
And they didn't like it. His brothers didn't like it. So what'd they do? They dissed Joseph. But in God's sovereignty, he was responsible for their rescue. Point is, again, that he's making here, this is from F.F. F. Bruce, the point is that Joseph, rejected by his brothers and exalted by pagan Pharaoh, became the means of his family's salvation in time of famine. As a result, the nation was multiplied outside Palestine. So he's making the point, you guys have rejected all along the way of our history, you've rejected the way God was trying to bless you, save you, uh, get you going forward into the future. Pretty good take, huh? Pretty good take. In verse 20, Stephen goes from discussing Abraham and the land to discussing Moses and the law, and he divides this section that follows into three segments and each covered 40 years of Moses' life. So in verses 20 through 22, he reminds them that Moses' earliest years were spent raised as an Egyptian. It was as if God had called someone who was not fully Jewish in their understanding to be a blessing and deliverer of the Jewish people. So God had to train this man in Egypt instead of the promised land. Verses 23 through 28, he hints that just as their ancestors had been wrong about Moses, they are now wrong about those revealing that their Messiah has come. So Old Testament guys resisted the prophets. You New Testament guys are resisting the apostles and all of us early Christians who are sharing this message about who Jesus really is. And then verses 34 through 37, the people initially rejected Moses even though Moses did signs and wonders. Well, who else had just done signs and wonders? Stephen had, and before him the apostles, right? So look here, he says, you guys have accused me of blasphemy and dishonoring our great uh, Jewish heritage. He said, but when Moses came on the scene, he worked the plagues, and you guys got mad at him because it was tough. And now Peter, Jesus came doing signs and wonders. Now Peter has the apostle, and guess what? Even the deacons here are allowed to do this all of a sudden, you know. Um, and so they had also forgotten one more thing. Who had Moses spoken of? Uh, and I think this is also, yeah, it's verse 37. Who had Moses spoken of? The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you must hear, you must obey, you must do what he says. Uh, in that same passage where he gives the test of the prophet, a prophet has to always be right or you ought to be done with him. He says one prophet is, uh, a prophet's going to come and you've got to do what he says. Now, our Muslim friends uh, say that this is about Muhammad because it uses the word prophet there. But if they acknowledge history, they understand that Muhammad uh, said that some of the revelations he got, the ones that they looked at sideways and said, that just seems weird, you know. Some of them he said, oh no, that wasn't from God. That was one of the satanic verses. That book that's titled The Satanic Verses is from Muslim lore that that's how uh, Muhammad described to the things that didn't make it in the Quran. So he actually gave out, uh, let's say that Muslims think everything in the Quran is true. I don't, but they do, right? But they say that he received things and actually said things that he dismissed as the ones that came from Satan. And sometimes when he got these things, he was foaming at the mouth. Uh, so I think that fits in the, Mo in the Genesis, or I'm sorry, the uh, Deuteronomy criteria in uh, chapter 18, Deuteronomy 18, for not listening to that prophet, right? Well, Jesus is going to come. You're going to have to listen to him. In verses 39 through 43, a lot of scripture to deal with. That's why I'm just summarizing things here. He reminds them that their forefathers had quickly entered into idolatry and often had worshipped idols instead of the God Moses pointed to. 
So Moses came down from the mountain, and even as he brings the Ten Commandments down, they're already worshiping idols. Aaron <laughs> very creatively says, uh, you know, I threw this, uh, all the gold the people gave me into the fire, and out came this golden calf. And uh, before that, he'd been saying, here's your God that delivered you from Egypt, you know, and they were already practicing idolatry. And it was a consistent refrain that the simplicity of following Yahweh and the great commands he had given were often, um, they wanted to be like other nations that had a God for this and a God for that. And he reminds them that that had happened. And then he transitions from the law to the temple. Let's read again verses 48 through 50 now. Uh, I mean, he's, he's gently dealing with them this history that the people have had of not doing what God says, of rejecting the prophets and the uh, ones that he sent before to lead and to teach. Um, so he does all that, but he's moving toward this thing about this, uh, the, how, how idolatrous the temple had become in their eyes. And um, so this is not going to make them... Uh, want to buy his CD set. Um, he says in verse 48, The Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Now interestingly, even as God was working with Solomon to put the temple there, Solomon acknowledged this very truth. He said, Lord, you're being so gracious to us in giving us a way to meet with you and a place we can come and pray and experience you. You're being so gracious to do that because the highest heavens, here's what he says, Heaven is my throne, God says, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? What is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Um, and, uh, but even as Solomon, if you check out uh, the Chronicles passages and the Kings passages where the temple's dedicated, he acknowledges that you know, heaven can't hold God. He's, he's, he's giving us a, a mercy. He's, 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 he's accommodating us. He's, he's um, you know, even God didn't call for a temple. He had a tabernacle, right, that they could take from place to place. And so he, God had uh, graciously acquiesced to let them have this. Um, and, uh, and he can take it away, right? And, of course, Peter, uh, Stephen's preaching this in the early 30s. And 70 A.D., the whole temple is going to be destroyed in fulfillment of the words of Jesus. Now, we believe that the prophets also talk about future temple activity to come and stuff like that. But he's trying to get their eyes on Jesus, get their eyes on God, uh, instead of these external forms of worship. And, you know, what's interesting is in the history of Christianity, how many times we have to go back to these words. How many times we say, look at our beautiful buildings. Now, Tabernacle's got nice buildings. We can do a lot in these 93,000 square feet we have and the 23 acres that we have and things like that. But this place ain't the Taj Mahal. You know, I mean, it's a metal building on the outside. You hear it every time it rains and the things go through. We built for Christians that have the Holy Spirit of God inside them through the new birth to gather together and worship and make beautiful noise for the Lord and singing and then go out and serve Him in all the ways He has for us to serve Him. You know, you go to Notre Dame Cathedral in... Uh, uh, Paris, now there's a building, you know, and uh, I'll tell you, you, ha you and I have both been in some of those historic Christian buildings. Probably at some point you've got to tour one or something like that, and people very much love their building, but somewhere along the line stop worshiping Jesus, doing what he said in the scriptures, and leading others to him. And so, unfortunately, the history of Christianity has shown some Stephen's word needing to come back to us, too. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember one time uh, preaching in a Salvation Army chapel, and it wasn't a, a, it just shows how this infects the human heart, right? And I gave a good message. I think somebody might have even gotten saved and stuff, but one person was really mad at me because I had misinterpreted how their building was laid out in the front, 
and I did something that for them was akin to when Dr. Adams got up on that front speech, <laughs> made some of y'all mad and stuff, you know. But I done, and the guy, this is a guy that uh, was, uh, you know, probably still in the throes of alcoholism, came up to me afterwards and stuff, and uh, was deeply upset because I had uh, desecrated their front area. And, and I, you know, all I did was walk around front and didn't realize that I'd done it. So I was very apologetic and things. But here's a guy that still needed to have a deeper encounter with Christ. He had a form that had meant so much to him. And that's what they had done with uh, the temple. So, so he transitions from the law to the temple. And he points that even when the temple was built, Solomon recognized that it was a means to the end of worshiping the God who doesn't really live in a temple. And Isaiah 7:14 says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and name him Emmanuel. So you guys are taking care of this temple that the glory hasn't been in since it departed back in Ezekiel, Babylonian captivity. And the one that created heavens and earth has stepped into time. The, the, and John says it so neatly. It says, the word became flesh and tabernacled, templed among us. Right? We beheld his glory, right? The last time the glory was at the temple area there in Jerusalem was when Jesus was at the temple, right? And uh, God with us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, then after Jesus went to heaven, he said, basically, listen, um, he left his apostles here. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you are God's temple, you're God's sanctuary, and the Spirit of God lives in you? And they're getting ticked off at this point, you know, as Stephen's walking this down. John MacArthur said, Stephen's point is that God is greater than the temple, and thus the Jewish leaders were guilty of blaspheming by confining God to it. Uh, verse 51 here. So he's talked to them about the land and the law and the temple, but he's pushed them to realize that they had been disobedient to God's revelation in the past. Now God himself has come. And in verse 51 he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's not in the Win Friends and Influence People book, by the way. <laughs> and you probably have never, ever turned on TV and seen Joel Osteen say that. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? They killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, and now they become the betrayers and murderers of the just one who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So just as many prophets before him, Stephen confronts, there's you fill in the blank, confronts the people with their sin. He says they have uncircumcised hearts and ears. In other words, they are as guilty before God as Gentiles who have no revelation at all. They've made an idol of the land, the law, and the temple, and are as bad as the grossest idolatry of the heathen. And now they've even missed God with us. They've missed Jesus. They've missed Emmanuel. So with his glowing face and holy heart that was the temple of the Holy Spirit, Stephen pressed this point home. He says, your fathers killed the prophets who announced the Messiah. You've now killed the Messiah himself. And uh, stop and think about that a minute. That's some pretty good preaching. <laughs> your fathers killed the ones who announced the Messiah. You killed the Messiah himself. Now you might remember that when Peter preached like this back in chapter 2, the people were so convicted by the Holy Spirit that they asked what? What they ask? What must we do to be saved? Not this time. Not this time. See, our, our job is to be faithful and share the Word of God and the truth that we have before us to share.
we can't uh, engineer response. So Peter preached a message that was pretty good. <laughs> 3,000 get saved and baptized. Stephen preaches and they kill him. I am sure if Stephen had been allowed to continue, he would have told them there was hope if they repented and received Jesus as their Messiah, but they didn't. So this yet crowd yelled, crucify him. Well, no, they yelled, stone him, right? Because that's how Jews uh, uh, were commanded in the law to kill somebody blaspheming. And we'll look at Stephen's martyrdoms, martyrdom next week. But for now, let's apply this to ourselves. They were the chosen people. They had the promise of the land, the knowledge of the law, the temple to worship in. These things were to be means in their obeying the first commandment to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as their self. Instead, they had made idols of the means. And for too many professing Christians, we're also guilty of replacing love for Jesus with the things that are supposed to lead us closer to Jesus. We can do it with buildings, we can do it with classes, we can do it with programs, we can do it with ministries. And they're all only valid if they continue to be means of knowing Jesus and making Him known. Amen? Well, let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.